All right, everybody else, turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 14, please. We'll be in Romans chapter 14 today as we continue on in our series that we've called Truth Seekers, as we talk about being people of the truth and people who are interested in truth and people who are seeking the truth. What does that look like? And how do we, in the world in which we're living, where we have access to so much information and there are so many opinions and there's all of this stuff out there, whether it's political opinions or theological opinions or COVID opinions or whatever it is that we are sorting through, how do we know what's true and what's not? If we're going to be followers of Jesus, then we should be very committed to truth because Jesus said, I am the truth and we believe God's word is the truth. We are filled with the spirit of truth and so truth should be very, very important to us. And so we've been talking about this for a number of weeks now. If you've missed any of the messages, you can go onto our YouTube channel. All of them are there. We also have restarted our uh, audio podcast of the sermons as well. And so we have an audio podcast that would go up every week, so no video there. But some people like to listen while they're doing other things. And so we stuck a pin in that because for some reason, Xavier got super busy mid-March with other things. And so we've decided that everything is in a good spot where that's something that we can pick up again. So that's been going for a few weeks there. But just to let you know that that is happening as well. We've said in this series, it's an easy series that when you're listening, you can be thinking, I know someone else who needs to hear this, right? It's easy to point to someone else and say, well, they need to hear it. This is for them. But we've been saying all along, no, this is for you. Don't tune this out. This is for you. This is for me. Any one of us can be deceived. Any one of us can be misled. And I know this because Adam and Eve were in the garden with the Lord and they were face to face with him. And they saw his face. They heard his words. They saw his glory. There was no sin separating them. Like they were right there. And when the enemy came knocking, they were able to be deceived. So none of us should be so arrogant as to think that we have it all figured out or we know our Bible so well that we cannot possibly be let off track. This series is for all of us. So a few weeks ago, there was a ministry in the States and they posted something on social media. This wasn't the exact one because I think they must have taken that one down, but it was something very similar to this. It said, pray for President Trump and the First Lady. So there was no, like, we're endorsing them. There was no, you should vote for them. It was purely a call to prayer. And you remember that uh, they both had caught COVID and President Trump had been in the hospital. And so pray for President Trump and the First Lady. That was all it said. I can't stress enough. That's all it said was pray for them. And... I know I shouldn't get into the comments on any internet page. Like, I know that. I know I shouldn't start reading what people are saying. But on that, there was like 5,000 comments in two hours. And I was like, oh, I wonder what they're talking about. <laughs> and so I started to read. And certainly, there was a, a large chunk of people who just said, absolutely, of course. Of course, I will pray for them. First Timothy chapter 2 tells us we need to pray for those in authority over us. So, of course, I will pray for the president. And some people even saying, you know what? I, I don't agree with a lot of what the president does, but yes, I will pray for him. We are all called to pray for him. Of course, I will pray for him. And then beyond that group of people, there was this whole other thing going on in the comment threads. And some people were very angry at what it 
didn't say at all, but what they were reading into it, which was, oh, so this ministry supports him in everything he does. Oh, so this ministry is calling everybody to vote for him. Oh, so this ministry is endorsing President Trump for, for another term. And you know, I used to respect this ministry, but now I don't respect the ministry anymore because I don't like President Trump and I don't think they should be telling us how to vote. And then other people are jumping in saying, what are you talking about? They're not telling you how to vote. They're telling you that you should pray. Well, it's implied that it's an endorsement because it's so close to election time. And so what they're saying is everybody should vote for the president. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Well, how could you not feel any differently? Have you seen what he's done for pro-life causes? Have you seen what he's done for Israel and for religious freedoms? And, and so, of course, we should vote for President Trump. President Trump is God's will for America. Oh, really? He's God's will for America? Well, sorry, prophet. I didn't realize that you'd heard from the Lord. I really don't like his character, and I don't like the way he talks. And I can't believe you would think that would be a man that God would want. Well, you know what? Maybe if you read your Bible a little more regularly, you would actually know what God wanted. I'll pray for you because you're obviously so deceived that you can't see that he's absolutely God's choice. No, you don't pray for me. I'm going to pray for you that the Holy Spirit takes the blinders off because you are so just caught up in the spirit of this world that you don't have any clue. And on and on and on for thousands and thousands of comments. It was ex I was on for five minutes and it was exhausting to be there. And I don't know where everybody's at on this, this comment board, but they're following this Christian ministry, so presumably they're Christians. And I'm going, man, this, this is the Christians talking. These are the Christians talking. John Piper posted something a few days ago, and John Piper is a, a Reformed Baptist pastor in the States, and um, I'm not a Reformed Baptist pastor, and so I would disagree with him on a lot of things theologically, but I, I admire the man tremendously. He's an incredibly gifted teacher, and he's so devoted to the Word of God and to Jesus. And he posted something a few days ago saying, he wrote a little essay saying, here's why I can't vote for President Trump. Here's why my conscience won't allow me to. And he had scripture that he was leaning on. He was saying, you vote however you want. I'm not telling anybody how to vote, but people keep asking me who I'm going to vote for. And so I, I felt like I would say something. And so he just said, I don't feel like I can vote for him. He said, I can't vote for Biden either for conscience reasons. And so I'm going to vote for a third party candidate. And, and that's, I think, what I'm going to do. And he wasn't even totally decided. He just said, this is where I'm at right now. And, and it was the same sort of thing. I mean, he just got destroyed in the comment section by people who were saying things like, I used to love John Piper, and now I'm never going to listen to a sermon again. I'm never going to read a book again because I don't agree with his stance on Trump. And just people just getting so upset and so angry and just how easily it devolves into, well, if you don't agree with me, you're not a real Christian, right? If you don't agree with me, you obviously hate your Bible. If you don't agree with me, you're obviously deceived. And I go, you know, we're not even talking about a biblical issue. We're talking about a secular politician in this moment. We're talking about a political opinion, which of course has ties into what God's doing in the world. But just the level of contempt, the level of anger, the level of, of hate even, the level of, of just the rage of how can you disagree with me on this? And just as you're reading it, I'm going, man, there is nothing different amongst these Christians than any other secular discussion online. Like, there is nothing different. They're not talking any differently 
They are being just as rude, just as critical, just as insulting. And the only difference is they're using the Bible as a weapon, right? They're using godliness as a weapon. If you were really reading your Bible, you would agree with me. If you were really a godly person, if you were really a follower of Jesus, if you were really filled with the Spirit, you would agree with me on this secular political opinion. And I thought, man, we're supposed to be holy, right? Right? Like, that, that's an easy one, right? We're, we're supposed to be holy. What do we do with Trump? That's a hard question. Are we supposed to be holy? The answer is yes. Yes, we are. Undeniably, both testaments, we are called to be holy. And holy means set apart. It means different. It means put aside for the purposes of God. We are supposed to be different than the world around us. And when our conversations and our disagreements look exactly the same as the world around us, except we throw some Christianese in there, then we are not holy in those moments. And what does it mean to be a church in divided times where, where there's disagreement about politics, there's disagreement about the police, there's disagreement about Black Lives Matter, there's disagreement about a million theological issues? Like, what does it mean to disagree in a holy way? What does it mean to be different? What does it mean to look different? What does it mean to not be caught up in the same level of, div of divisiveness and anger and rage as the world around us because we are called to be different? And so the Word of God helps us out in this area. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Romans chapter 14, and we're going to read a, a good chunk of this, so bear with me. Ready? Not at all. All right, I'm going anyway. Thanks, guys. Romans 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. So let's stop there. And there's lots more good stuff we could dig into. 
So this is the early church, and in the early church, they're figuring things out. Paul is writing to the Roman church, and they're figuring it out. They are, are forging a new course. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? We have the benefit now of 2,000 years between now and then, but they are figuring it out for the first time, and when they are figuring it out, they don't have a New Testament yet, right? They don't have that written yet. It's being written at this time, but the scriptures that they are looking to are the Old Testament scriptures. That is the word of God that they have. The New Testament is coming, but it's not formed yet. And so they are reading the Old Testament. They are understanding that Jesus has come to do a new thing, but they have the word of God that is the inspired word of God that they are looking to, and they are wrestling through what does it mean to be a Christ follower in our time? What does it mean to live out this faith in Jesus that we have? And not everything was crystal clear. And so one of the things that they're struggling with in this passage is, do we still need to be kosher or not? The Old Testament law says that there are certain things that are clean that we're allowed to eat. There are certain things that are unclean that we're not allowed to eat. Do we still need to do that as followers of Jesus? It's in the Bible that we're reading. It's right there. Do we actually have to hold to that? Has Jesus come to set us free from that? What does it mean in terms of our walk with him? And so Leviticus chapter 11 unpacks this a lot more. Verse 46 and 47 says, these are the regulations concerning animals, birds, and every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. And so the church is saying, so do we still have to do this as followers of Jesus? Do we still have to hold to the Old Testament Mosaic law? Are we set free from that now as we follow Jesus? What do we do with that? The passage will go on to talk about drinking as a conversation as well. Like, what do we do with drinking? Is a Christian allowed to drink or should they not drink? And they look to the scriptures. You look to the Old Testament Bible that they're reading, and the Old Testament and the New Testament are very clear on drunkenness, that we avoid that entirely because that is sinful. But Proverbs 23, 31 and 32 says, Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. That's just, they're plugging wine right there. That's an advertisement. But in the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. And who doesn't know someone who's not been bitten by that, right? Like we know the damage that alcohol can do. But Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15 says that the Lord makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, Oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. And so one verse says, beware of alcohol. It's a viper that will bite you. The other one says, it's a blessing from God, along with the grass and the plants and everything else. And so what do we do with something like that? Like, can we acknowledge the Bible's a complicated book? And that there are parts that seem to not be in sync with other parts. Like we, I think that's the only honest thing we can say is that there are parts that, that seem to say one thing and other parts that seem to say another. And so we come into this kind of wrestling with the Lord and wrestling with our community of faith as we say, well, what does that mean? And how do we actually live it out? What conclusions should we be arriving at? And so as a Christ follower, are we able to have a glass of wine or not? We can't get drunk for sure, but are we able to have a glass of wine at dinner? Or is it a viper that we're supposed to be a avoiding, and the Roman church is struggling with this. They are struggling with, what are we allowed to eat? Is it okay for us to drink? And in 1 Corinthians, it ties into another conversation the early church is having, is having about, what about the food and drink that gets sacrificed to idols? Is that okay? Like, we don't believe in idols. We, we shouldn't be participating with idols, but it was a common practice at the time that before you had your meal, you sacrificed it to an idol as a worship to that false god. So should Christians be eating and drinking things that are connected to a false god? Is that okay for us? 
to do. So there's all of these conversations going on. And what we see in this passage is not every Christ follower is actually coming to the same conclusion on what is truth and what is not truth. And so in our search for truth, what are we to do? What do we do if we see Bible passages that are are not necessarily totally in sync? What do we do if we have a brother or sister in Christ who disagrees with us on something and they've got scripture to back up their point and I've got scripture to back up my point? What does that mean in our search for truth? How do we walk that out as a community of faith? And it comes down uh, to this idea of disputable matters that Paul talks about in this passage, that there are things in our faith that are indisputable. They are essential. We're not fighting about them. We're not debating them. Um, they're, They're steadfast. But then there are disputable matters, what he calls disputable matters. And in disputable matters, we have some grace and some patience as we wrestle through them together. We can have some grace in disagreement if others are coming to different opinions. So verse one, man, we're jumping ahead, eh? This remote... Verse 1 through 4 of our passage, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. There's our term. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And so in the question of uh, what can we eat, do we have to say kosher or not? When it talks about the person whose faith is weak, what it probably means is the person whose faith is young someone who's newer to the faith and still figuring things out. It could be someone who just doesn't quite have as strong a faith as someone else. But when our faith is weak, we tend to lean towards rules more because it's just kind of a better safe than sorry. And so when our faith is weak, it's easier to say, how do we make God happy? Let's just make sure we don't cross the line. And if we have to add some rules to do that, then we'll just do that. And so you maybe don't understand yet the freedom that we have in Christ. And so there are some whose faith is weaker, some whose faith is stronger. But either way, Paul says, don't quarrel over disputable matters. And so some are only eating vegetables. And so they're in a place where they're saying, I don't know if it's appropriate to be kosher or not kosher. Uh, which animal should I be eating or not eating? So I'm just not eating animals, period. I'm just going to avoid the whole thing and only eat vegetables, and that way I'll know that I'm safe when, and I'm trying to make the Lord happy. But Paul says the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them, both of them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servant stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So this idea of disputable matters, what's a disputable matter then? What is that? Now the answer to that question is up for dispute. Uh, Not everyone will agree necessarily on what's an indisputable matter or a disputable matter, but here's my definition of a disputable matter. It's any issue in which scripture either does not give a clear direction Or it's an issue where more than one reasonable biblical conclusion can be reached. So an issue in which scripture does not give a clear direction. When I was growing up at church in the 80s, one of the questions was, can Christians go to the movies? Is it allowed for Christians to go to a movie theater? The Pentecostal joke, which was the church I grew up in, was that, like, no, you don't want to be in a movie theater because if Jesus comes back, the movie theater roofs are so shielded that you'll bounce off the roof and come back down. You won't get caught up to the Lord. Uh, You don't want to be in a theater when Jesus comes back. So the Bible doesn't say anything about movie theaters. They don't exist, right? So the Bible doesn't give a clear direction. So that's a disputable matter. Should Christians go to the movies or not? Or a disputable matter can be an issue where more than one reasonable biblical conclusion can be reached, like the alcohol issue that I just brought up. 
If you believe a Christian should abstain from all alcohol, you'll have some scripture that you can lean on to back that up. If you believe a Christian in very intense moderation can have a glass of wine and and receive that as a blessing of God, you'll have some scripture that can back that up. And so we can be on different sides of the coin, even though we're reading the same Bible. We might come to different conclusions. And so a disputable matter is basically just something that's not black and white. There are things in Scripture that are very, very clear. There are things in Scripture that are less clear. And so I, one of the things I love about the Mennonite Brethren statement of faith is as a philosophy, the Mennonite Brethren have said, the things that the Bible is very clear on, we will be very clear on. And the things that the Bible is less clear on or in the, the areas where the, the scriptures might not totally line up really easily or, or it might be a bit harder, then we're going to have some grace for that. We're going to have some grace that we might disagree on some things that are lesser matters of the faith. We're going to have some, some grace for one another in how we disagree as we dig into the scriptures together. So there are disputable matters. There are things that are not as clear as other things, but that also means that there are indisputable matters. There There are essential matters. There are bedrock matters, and we're not arguing about those things. So things like we believe in one God. We believe that that one God exists as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, somehow bound together distinctly and yet as one in this beautiful mystery that we call the Trinity. We believe in the fallenness of man, that all are sinful, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we are fallen in such a way that we can't earn our way back. We can't save ourselves from this problem, Uh, that the, the wages of sin are death, and so we are cut off from God. We are cut off from life, ultimately, and ultimately we die because of our sin, and we can't do anything about it on our own. We are sinners who are lost in our sin. We are sinners in need of saving. But God has stood up and said, I will save them, my Myself. And so we believe in the incarnation, that God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ, and Jesus lives out this perfect life before us, this sinless life in front of us. It's the example for us and how we are to live, and Jesus shows us what exactly God is looking for, what a perfect holy life looks like. We believe that there is one way to salvation, and that way is through Jesus. We believe that that salvation comes through the cross and the resurrection, that our biggest problems in our fallenness is our sin, which we can't solve on our own, and our death, which we can't overcome on our own. In the cross, Jesus deals with our sin. And in the resurrection, Jesus deals with our death. And so in the cross and resurrection, we are saved through that as we put our trust in Jesus. We believe in the inspired divine authority of Scripture, that Scripture is the final word on all matters of faith and Christian practice. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That's the old phrase that we would use from the Apostles' Creed. You'll notice Catholic is in a small c. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic, but it means Catholic in what that word actually means, which means universal, that we believe that anyone who calls Jesus Lord for the past 2,000 years is part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we are part of that with brothers and sisters all over the world and across all times who follow after Jesus. We believe in the return of Christ, the literal return of Christ to this earth. And there's other things we would probably put up there as well. But these are the things that we're not fighting about. These are the things that the Bible doesn't give wiggle room on. These are the things that are very, very clear in Scripture. And it's not that we shouldn't talk about why we believe them or what Scriptures are we leaning on to believe them. But these are the things that we're not arguing about. And if you're coming to church and you say, well, I don't believe there's only one God, or I don't believe that Jesus is the only way, or I don't believe that he literally rose from the dead, then we would say, okay, well, you're entitled to your opinion, but that is who we are here. 
And every other Orthodox church around the world would hold to this, basically, as the statement of faith. And so these are the indisputable matters. These are the essential matters. We're not debating these things anymore. The church has done that uh, in the first few hundred years of the church to try and sort through it all. But these are the things that we, we stand strong on and, and we're in unity on. These are the things that we believe. Beyond that... There's one or two matters of the faith and Christian practice that are up for debate. There's a few things uh, that Christians have not agreed on in 2,000 years, and here's just a few of them. There's the alcohol issue I've mentioned already. Should a Christian abstain from alcohol? Is it okay for a Christian to have a glass of wine? The Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, this has been going on for centuries now at this point, and if you don't know what those terms mean, that's okay. Uh, we're Arminian here. We're probably right, but as we are... Uh, sorting through these things, it has to do with things like predestination and God's sovereignty and man's free will and election and, and all of those kinds of things. Two big schools of thought in the body of Christ on which is right, which is wrong. Both have a lot of Bible on their side that they point to when the debate comes up. What about baptism? Who should be baptized? How should they be baptized? What's happening in the baptism? Same with communion. Uh, what is happening in the communion? Some uh, believe that Jesus is present in the elements somehow. Uh, we believe that in our particular stream, that it, they are a remembrance, they are a sign and a symbol that point us to the cross. And, and so there's lots of different opinions in many streams about what's going on in communion. Eternal security, are we saved forever? Are we once saved, always saved? Can we lose our salvation potentially? What about different worship styles? Some people like a modern style, some people like the hymns, some people like the organ, some people like the choir, uh, some people like a band. What, where does that all fit in? What about preaching styles? Similar, similarly, different ways in which we share and unpack the word of God. The role of women in the church. Some people believe that women are limited by scripture in certain areas. Some believe women can do whatever the spirit empowers them to do. Some streams of the church believe that the spiritual gifts are over and they don't exist anymore. Some believe that they are very much uh, alive and functioning in the church. And what about end time stuff? Like, I don't know if there's anything in the Bible that's more confusing than end time stuff as we're trying to sort it out. And so in all of these things, uh, some of them just scripture doesn't give a clear picture of. Scripture doesn't tell us what a preaching style should be in a church. Some of them are issues where, you know, you can find scripture on each side, or you can find scripture to justify your position on each side. And because of that, they are in dispute. These are issues that people are not in full agreement on across the body of Christ. Virtually every Christian church on earth is going to say, we believe Jesus is alive, right? That's not up for debate. But if you ask, what do you guys think is going on at the communion table? You might get very different answers depending on if you're talking to a Presbyterian or an Anglican or a Catholic or a Pentecostal. And so these are disputable matters. These are ones where the scriptures are not crystal clear. And these are the ones where we need to have a lot of patience and a lot of grace. Where, where we don't agree. Because we are all reading the same Bible. We are all revering the same Bible. At the first church I worked at, uh, I was one of the support staff, and there was a man who came with his family, and they came for about a year, and they were really loving the church. And they would say, oh, we love that pastor's preaching, and we love the worship, and we love the kids' ministry, and the youth, like they really seemed to be enjoying themselves. And then they disappeared. Uh, they just stopped coming. And so one of the pastors went over to the house to have a visit and to chat a bit about just what had happened. We, we love you, and we, we loved you being part of our church family, and then you just disappeared. And the man said, well, you believe, when it comes to the end times, as a Pentecostal church, uh, you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I didn't know that. 
But you mentioned it in a sermon one time. And, and I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe in a post-tribulation rapture. And if you don't know what those mean, that's okay, because they're disputable matters. And not that we shouldn't dig into it, but they're not deal breakers for us. And so the pastor said, well, listen, like that, that is our denomination statement of faith, but like we're not dying on that hill. End time stuff is, is tricky to sort through in scripture. And, and of course, something is truth, but uh, you know, wh- whichever stance you take, there's some Bible there. And so, you know, we don't, we don't need to fight about that. Like you don't need to quit the church over that. Like if you love everything else going on and if you're in agreement with us, like we can have grace for you if you can have grace for us. And the man couldn't have any grace on it. He just, he was hard and fast that that is not what the Bible says. And so I'm going to leave the church and go and find somewhere else. But there's this grace that Paul calls us to in our passage today, verse 5 and 6. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. The law had holy days and feasts and things. So Christ followers, do we still need to follow those things? Do we need to honor those special days? Paul says, each person, whether you want to follow those days or not, each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So there's some room here for disagreement. If you have wrestled with the word, if you have prayed it through, if you have sought the Lord and said, this is my conviction, Paul says, bless that person. They're doing it out of their worship to God. So if this stream of the church believes that they have this view of communion and we say, well, we might not agree with you in your view of communion, but you've wrestled through the scriptures, you've prayed about it, you've come to a conviction, you're ultimately doing that because you believe that Jesus died and rose again and you're celebrating him, then God bless you. We can agree to disagree because they're doing it to the Lord. And so, you know, if I believe that women can do anything where the Holy Spirit empowers them, and there's a church over here that believes that no women are limited and they shouldn't lead or teach men, then we say, hey, you've wrestled through the scripture, we've wrestled through the scripture, you've prayed it through, we've prayed it through, we both have Bible that we can point to to back up our perspective. And so the right response is, God bless you as you do that unto the Lord. And not to break down into, well, you believe that, that's because you're sexist. Well, you believe that because you don't take your Bible seriously. And to fall into that ridiculous, contemptuous, worldly arguing. It's, hey, whatever they're doing, they're doing it unto the Lord. And if they're doing it sincerely and worshipfully unto the Lord, you give them some space to do that. Doesn't mean that they're right. Doesn't mean that you might not talk about the issue, but it means how are you treating them? What's your attitude? What are you bringing to that conversation as you have that discussion? I worked at a church where uh, there was a young man who was a worship leader in the church, and he began to feel like, oh, I'm doing all my music in the church, and I love it. I love leading worship, but I'm not witnessing to people very much, and I'm not out there. I'm spending a lot of time here. So how can I fulfill the Great Commission? How can I get out there and share Jesus with people? What does that look like? How can I use the gifts that God's given me in music and worship and use it to glorify him while also reaching the lost? And so he prayed through it a lot and talked to some friends and ultimately came to the conclusion, he's like, you know what? On Fridays and Saturday nights, I'm going to go play in a bar. And he was a songwriter. He said, I'm going to write some worship songs that are to Jesus, but ones that I could sing in a bar uh, in a way that they'll be able to hear it. They won't get uptight right away because they hear the word Jesus. I'm going to sing love songs to Jesus. And he wrote them in a way that he could have been singing about a girl, that kind of thing. He wasn't doing it in church on a Sunday morning, but he was doing it in this specific context. And he said, well, let's just try that for a while and let's see what happens. 
And so what began to happen was he would go to these bars and he would play these love songs to Jesus, these worship songs. And, you know, it sounds like he's singing to a woman. And people would come up to him after his set and they would say, wow, your wife is a very lucky lady. Right? You are devoted. Wow. And he would see the doors opening to say, well, I, you know what? I'm actually not singing about a woman. I'm singing about Jesus. And he would sit with people and he would talk about Jesus. And some of the people he talked with would come and check out the church. And so doors were opening. And so someone in our church heard about this and they were just not happy at all. They were, they were angry. And they went and talked to other people and they got angry. And, and so it came up at the leadership level. And the argument was, you know, there's drunkenness happening in a bar. There's, there's people trying to get together at a bar in a way that they shouldn't. And there's all sorts of stuff going on there. And if you're there playing there, like you're getting paid to be there, you're participating in that. Like you're actually encouraging them being there by, by going and playing for them. And that's not a good witness. And he's saying, well, I, someone's got to go minister to these people. They're not coming to church on a Sunday morning. I want to go meet them where they're at. And so it went back and forth for a bit. And, you know, as you're listening, you're making a judgment right now too, right? Do I agree with the guy or do I not? And finally the church said, you know what? Like, as long as you're not actually participating in the drunkenness and in what's going on there, we're going to encourage you to bring someone with you just so they can be praying for you and so that there's some accountability there. But, but we're going to be okay with this. We're going to see what happens. And again, it wasn't that you need to agree or disagree with one side of that, but just how quickly anger rose up, how quickly judgment rose up, how quickly accusation rose up, and, and how quickly they, they just began to tear him down. And when it comes to our convictions on these disputable matters, or anything, really, whether it's politics or, or what's going on in the world today, like we would all do well, myself very much included, in just reminding ourselves that there is a difference between opinion and fact. Now, when I have an opinion, I am pretty sure it's the facts, right? Like, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that I'm right when I feel strongly about something. But a fact is something that's indisputable. A fact is something that cannot be challenged. A fact is something that is just reality. This carpet is black. That's just a fact. It's not an opinion. That's just what it is. And when it comes to lots of things, we have our opinions, and we act as if they are facts. Your thoughts on President Trump are not facts. They're opinions right? Amen? They're not facts, they're opinions. And your opinions are almost certainly going to be swayed by your political opinions and convictions on whether you think he's doing a good job or not. Our opinions on certain passages of scripture are just that, they're opinions, because the Bible is a big book and a complex book and an intersecting book. And so sometimes Christians who both love the Bible can read one passage and come to different conclusions on what it means or how we should be living that out. And in those moments, we say, here's my opinion on that passage. I heard a, a preacher once, a Calvinist preacher, was talking about predestination, and he said, predestination is an undeniable fact. And he sounded very convincing, sounded very sure of himself. And I went, yeah, but it's not, though. It's not an undeniable fact. I'm not saying even that it's not true, but it's not an undeniable fact. There's a reason we've been arguing about that for 500 years. 
It's because there's some scripture that points to predestination. There's some other that points to free will. There's a reason we've been arguing for 500 years. So to stand up and say, there's no wiggle room on this, it's just a fact, is disingenuous to the Bible as a whole. It sounds really strong and convincing, but I actually think it's, it's inauthentic. It's not being fair to the biblical text. It's, it's just deciding, I'm right, and I know I'm right, and I'm going to ignore the other side. I'll ignore the scriptures on the other side. And so to be able to say, there are certain things like biblically, Jesus is alive, that's a fact. Biblically, that's a fact. We're not arguing about that. We're not debating that. But there's a lot of other things that we've talked about here which do fall under the realm of opinion that are a little bit different. Moving on to verse 10. Paul says, so you then, given everything I just said, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Who's the judge in this passage? Not you. It's not me. All of us are going to give an account to God. It's not to say that disputable matters aren't important. But it's to say, if you are living that out sincerely and biblically and prayerfully to the best of your understanding, I might disagree with you, but we're actually going to let God worry about who's right and who's wrong. And, and this phrase here that's so important to me, why do you treat your brother or sister with contempt? And that word contempt, that's what was so grievous reading the comments it wasn't the disagreement, it was the contempt. It wasn't that some Christians love Trump and some Christians hate Trump. That's fine, we can disagree on that. But it was the contempt with which brothers and sisters in Christ were talking to one another. It was the contempt of, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm smart, you're dumb. I take my Bible seriously and you don't. I'm filled with the Spirit and you're not. I'm godly and you're ungodly. Everything that was going along. And any time, like no one's thinking those phrases as they say them, but any time I'm elevating myself and putting others down, I've taken a step out of the way of Christ. Anytime I'm raising myself up and pushing my brothers and sisters down. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul's talking about unity. And he says, if you have any comfort in Christ, if you have any joy in knowing him, if you are, are in any way, uh, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by being of one heart, by being of one spirit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourself. And I'm not considering someone better than myself if I'm saying, oh, what, what's your opinion on women? Yeah, maybe you should read your Bible for a change. That's not considering that person better than myself. That's elevating myself. I'm godly, you're not. And so Paul says, so nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And then how do we do that? How do we live that out? He says this, listen, your attitude, your attitude, turn to the person next to you and say attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The way of the flesh, the way of the world, the way of sin is to elevate myself. The way of Christ is to lower myself, 
to make myself nothing, to consider others better than myself, to be able to say with sincere Christian love, you disagree with me on spiritual gifts, you disagree with me on the role of women, you disagree with me on some end time stuff or whatever. Well, you know what? Those are really confusing parts of scripture. So thank God we're all saved and going to heaven, right? Because when you think about that list of the indisputables, we believe in one God, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the cross, we believe in the resurrection. Those are huge things to be united on. Like, don't blow past that because you've been in church for a while and you know that Christians believe that. It is incredible that we're on the same page on those things. Those are massive, life-changing, eternity, destiny-deciding questions. And we are on the same page on them. That's amazing. But if you want to have a glass of wine, you're probably going to hell. Not what the Bible says. No. No. So why treat your brother or sister with judgment? Why do you treat them with contempt? Like, how dare we is the heart of this. Are you that person's master? Are you their judge? You're not. No, you're not, because Jesus Christ is. How dare you judge someone else's servant? How dare you judge what they do out of their worship and out of their devotion? How dare we elevate ourselves over our brothers and sisters? We have to learn, even in these disagreements, how to live in unity. And you know what? Division is really easy. Unity and disagreement is hard. And like in so many things, most of us go, it's hard, so I'm not going to do it. I should only have to do the easy things that Jesus calls me to do. Does that sound like the way of Jesus? Jesus who says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, come follow me, die to yourself every single day. Division is easy. It's easy to say, you know what? I'm just not going to talk to those people anymore. I'm just going to back away. I just, I don't need that, that division. I don't need that in my life. Like that's easy. That's easier. It's easier just to like, la, 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 la. If I don't hear them anymore, then they're not a problem. But to actually say, no, we're going to stay in community together. We're actually going to remain in fellowship together in spite of our disagreements because the things that unite us are so much greater than anything that could divide us. Verse 14, 15, these will be the last verses we look at this morning. Paul says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Let's pause there for a second. So Paul's saying, I've heard from the Lord, we can eat whatever we want. Right, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I know for a fact, I've heard it from Jesus, we can eat whatever we want. So it's not that there's no truth in this debate. There is truth, and the truth is, we can eat whatever we want. Look what he says next. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. So that means there's something that can be true for me that might not actually be true for you on disputable matters. What the Bible says is sin for everyone is sin for everybody. But it means, Paul's saying, I know I'm right. We don't have to stay kosher. But if your conviction before the Lord is you need to stay kosher, then for you, you need to stay kosher. You need to live that out. Live out your conviction that you have prayed through and arrived at unto the Lord. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Pow! In the face! Like, if this disputable matter is becoming a stress, if it's becoming a division, if it's becoming, then you are failing the love test in that moment. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. 
And I love, it's not, do not by your eating destroy a fellow church member. Do not by your eating destroy a brother or sister in Christ. There's a reminder built in. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. You know how we all believe that we're sinners in need of saving and Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? Paul's saying, remember the important things, guys. Remember the most important things. Remember the things that unite us. What we eat or what we don't eat. Paul would go on to say, the kingdom's not a matter of eating or drinking. Right? It's a matter of righteousness and life, joy in the Holy Ghost. Like It's not about the, the rules and regulations on these disputable matters. And so I, I find this passage just blows me away. Because Paul is saying, there is a truth here, and I know I have it. Right? He's an apostle. He walks with the Lord. The Spirit breathes the truth through him. So I know for a fact we don't have to stay kosher anymore. We've agreed with that, right? Because we don't stay kosher as Christians in the 21st century. So Paul says, there is a right or wrong here. I know that I'm right. But if you want to stay kosher and that's your conviction to the Lord that you have wrestled through and prayed through and arrived at biblically, then you need to go do that. And if I mess with that in any way, then I'm failing the love test. My love for you more important than me being right on a disputable matter. My love for you is more important than wrestling you to the ground, trying to argue you into my side. And it's not to say, again, that we don't have that debate or have that discussion, but my love for you is more important than being right. And man, if every marriage on earth embraced that principle, my love for you is more important than me being right. If every family could embrace that, if every community, if every church could embrace that, my love for you is more important than being right when it comes to these things. And we talked in the first week about my truth versus your truth, that very common phrase in the time in which we live. And we said, when it comes to objective truth, there can't be my truth in your truth, right? Jesus is alive. That's either true or it's not. It can't be alive for me and, and not alive for somebody else. Like it's, it's either true or it's not. If I'm in a car accident, it's either my fault or it's not. And so when it comes to objective truth, there can't be my truth or your truth. It would seem that Paul is saying on disputable matters, there's a little room for my truth in your truth. There's a little room for I'm going to live out my conviction and you're going to live out your conviction and, and we'll wrestle through it together and, and we'll see where we're at. But I'm going to give you the grace to live it out your way and you're going to give me the grace to live it out my way because we're not saying my truth, your truth over the, the essentials. But when it comes to the, the in, uh, non-essentials, the indisputable matters or the disputable matters, we're going to have some room for that. So my dad, 25 years ago, felt like the Lord told him, you need to give up alcohol. You just need to give it up altogether. And it was starting to become a problem in his life. So he prayed through it, wrestled through it, came to the conviction that I, just, I should not touch it. And my mom joined him in that. And so for 25 years, they have not touched a drop and, and just have never uh, gone back into that. Now, your conviction might be different than that. I know some people in the room agree with my parents and live out your life that way. Your conviction might be, you know what, I can receive a glass of wine for the blessing that it is, and, and I don't need to have it be a problem, and I have not crossed the line into drunkenness, and so my conviction is I can enjoy that. And what Paul's getting at is, yeah, don't judge my dad if he's given it up. And my dad shouldn't be judging anyone who has a glass of wine in, in very careful and clear moderation. It's don't... Don't condemn, don't look with contempt on the brother or sister who feels differently than you, to have that grace in order to do that. As Jesus was coming to the end of his time on earth, in John chapter 13, 34 and 35, he's talking to his disciples. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. And here's the kicker, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
Like, that's going to be how the world knows we're Christ followers. That's going to be maybe not the only way, but one of the crucial ways. How well we love one another is going to be the sign. So what does an unsaved person looking at all those Christians fighting in the comments think? Do they think, wow, what a great community. I want to be a part of them. Look how they love one another. And it's like, no, love doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, right? Like, just ask my wife in our marriage, right? We don't have to agree on everything. Love is, I'm going to choose to be in unity with you, even though we disagree on some things. And we lean on the fact that the things that we agree on are so much greater than anything that we disagree on, and we have room for disagreement there. And, and again, division is easy. Unity and disagreement is hard. Sometimes as Christ followers, we have to take the harder road. We have to deny ourselves. We have to pick up our cross. We have to follow after him. And so we get to model for the world what love looks like. We get to show the world what that is. And instead of saying, you know what, we're going to fight the way the world fights. We're going to be rude, and we're going to be arrogant, and we're going to be condescending, and we're going to call names, and we're going to slander. And if it gets too bad, we're just going to bail, and we're going to end that relationship. Like, we're, we get to do something totally different and say, what does it mean to be holy in disagreement? What does it mean to be holy in how we're disagreeing? What does it mean to be different than everything else that's going on in the world right now and in a time when the world is incredibly divided and there's all sorts of anger and there's all sorts of rage and there's all sorts of attacks and there's all sorts of slander? What does it mean for us as Christ followers to say, what's a more loving way to disagree, right? What's a better way for us to do that? Where am I gonna give grace instead of anger? Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. Someone asked me in the first week, why would I want to spend time with people who disagree with me, right? Like that can just be unpleasant and, and, you know, it's not always a fun thing. But the answer is this is why. Because the world is supposed to look at us, look at us and say, man, how they love one another. And whether the issue is Trump or whether the issue is alcohol or whether the issue is Calvinism or whatever it is that we're disagreeing on, Man, to model for the world, we would still die for each other, even though we disagree on these less essential matters of the faith. Like, that would be an impact in this world, right? If we looked that different, that would be, we would stand out. That would be a way to let our light shine. And so here at Meadowbrook, we, we have had to make choices on some of these disputable matters as a church. So we do have positions on some of these things. And we're going through our Pathways class right now, and that's for people who are newer to the church and, and checking it out. And as part of our Pathways class, we go through our statement of faith and we go through our philosophy of ministry. And there's nothing, just to be clear, there is nothing in me, nothing in our leadership that feels like Meadowbrook has it all together. We've got it all figured out. There's nothing that's like we're right and others are wrong. Like, I, I promise you, there's not a hint of that here. And Spurgeon famously said, like, there are no perfect churches. If you're looking for perfect churches, you're never going to find one. And by the way, if you did find a perfect church, it would be ruined the moment you joined it. Right? We're all bringing our sin. We're all bringing our struggles. And so at Meadowbrook, again, we are on one side or the other of a lot of these things. We are an Anabaptist church. That is who we are. I'm not saying we're right and others are wrong, but we're an Anabaptist church. That is our emphasis. We have an Anabaptist statement of faith. We do ministry in an Anabaptist way. We're an Arminian church. We're not a Calvinist church. And so sometimes people come from a more of a Baptist background or a Reformed background, and they want to know why is the preaching not more Reformed or why is the emphasis not more Reformed? And the answer is because I'm not Reformed. We're not a Reformed church. That's just not who we are. 
We believe that the spiritual gifts exist. We have decided as a church that women can minister as the spirit leads. We've said not in a lead pastor role or a, a board chair role, but we believe as long as those roles are men, then male headship's still honored. And other than that, the Holy Spirit can gift women and we will bless that and we will encourage that. And, and any other things. We believe in a memorial communion. We believe in believer's baptism. And none of those things I just mentioned need to be deal breakers by any means. They're disputable matters. And so we say when people are going through pathways and they're thinking about, should I become a member or, or should I be baptized here? And we go through it and we just say, listen, you don't have to agree with us on anything, on everything. You should agree with us on some things. Uh, on everything, you don't need to agree with us, but you also need to understand just who we are and where we're at. And so part of our Anabaptist statement of faith is we believe in peacemaking. We believe in pacifism. I know not everyone in the room is on board with that, but the point is, if you're going to be here, you're going to live at peace with us on that. You're not going to get mad if I preach on it. You're not going to stir up trouble. The New Testament makes really clear we do not uh, hold to anyone who's being disruptive, anyone who's being divisive. You're allowed to disagree, but there's a way to disagree that's not divisive. So we're not going around yapping. We're not posting stuff on Facebook to undermine our statements of faith. Like we're, we're together here. We're in unity here. And, and I always say this, and I don't think people believe me, but I don't agree with everything that happens at Meadowbrook Church because it's not about me. And so there are sometimes decisions that get made and things that happen where I go, well, that's not my first choice, but it's not about one person. And part of learning how to love well is to say, even in disagreement, how do we walk in unity? And, and the way we do it, honestly, is that we remember that Jesus Christ is Lord and that which unifies us is so much greater than a difference of opinion we might not, that we might have over this issue or that issue. So here's a few questions for you to mull over this week. And if you miss them here, you can go on YouTube later and take a look at them. So where do I land on the various disputable matters? And very importantly, why do I land there? Where do I land on communion? Where do I land on alcohol? Where do I land on Calvinism? Uh, and why do I believe that? And have you dug deeper? Have you gone and looked at the scriptures on the other side of the fence? Have you been really doing your homework? Have you really dug into that? How is my heart, my attitude towards those on the other side? Is there anyone I need to apologize to or reconcile with? Is there a, a relationship? Sometimes these debates have gotten ugly. And whether they're theological debates or political debates or whatever it is, sometimes we say things that we shouldn't. Sometimes we, we end friendships. Sometimes we break away. And so is there anyone I need to go and, and fix something with? Is there a step I need to take in that direction today? By the way, if the, person, if the person that you've had an issue with doesn't know you're mad at them, you don't need to go tell them, okay? <laughs> you don't. I was leaving a church once to go to a new church and someone came up to me, and I'm not joking, on my last Sunday, and they just said, I need your forgiveness. And I said, oh, what for? And they said, I never respected you for a second the whole time you were here. And I went, I didn't need to know that today. So if, if there's something they don't know, they can live in that and you can deal with that with Jesus. Um, but sometimes we do need to go say sorry. That fight got heated. We broke fellowship and we shouldn't have. Is there anything I need to go fix? And then what can I do moving forward to ensure that my heart and my attitude is right before the Lord and towards others? In the Reformation, there was a conference that was called amongst the Lutheran church. It was called the Diet of Augsburg. And they were wrestling through some of these disputable matters and they were trying to create a Lutheran statement of faith. And so there was a number of things that it was gonna be a slam dunk, right? We believe in one God, we believe in the Trinity, we believe in Jesus Christ. There was a lot there that was gonna be very easy, but then there were things like communion and baptism and there was disagreement and some fighting was starting to happen. And so one of the theologians wrote a paper before the conference started 
And he just wanted to make sure everyone was coming in with the right heart, with the right attitude. And so his name was Rupertus Meldinius. And he said, here's our heart, guys. Here's our attitude. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. We're going to have grace that you can come to a conviction biblically that might not line up with mine, and that's okay. But in all things, charity. And that's the old English word for love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I mean, it's really Romans 14 in three lines. It's the whole chapter wrapped up in three lines. That there are things we're not arguing about that we're united on, and they're humongous. There are lesser things that we might disagree on, and we're going to have some grace and some freedom to wrestle through that. But in all things, we love one another. Because even in our search for truth, we don't get to throw out what love is for one another. And so as we get ready to close today, we wanted to end on that note of unity in the essential things. So we're going to sing a song that is our confession of faith on those essential matters. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and join with me, please. Join with this song with your brothers and sisters here, but not just here, because in different ways, Christians are engaging in these words all over the world this morning, and we are joining in that with them, which is a very exciting thought.